Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the career development series of the Sharp Waves podcast. I'm Alina from the ILE's Young Epilepsy Section, and today I am absolutely thrilled to interview Dr. Miriam Bensalem-Owen. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Ivanyuk. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak on the International League Against Epilepsy Sharp Waves podcast. Um, I'm really honored and touched by your invitation. Uh, so again, um, I'm Miriam Bensalem-Owen. I am uh, a neurologist uh, specialized in clinical neurophysiology uh, and epilepsy. Uh, and I practice at the University of Kentucky, I, where I direct the epilepsy program and uh, the epilepsy fellowship program, training program as well. So my father is Algerian uh, and my mother is Bulgarian. I was born in Algiers and I grew up partly in Algeria and partly in Italy. And to complicate a bit things, I went to the French school in Milan. <laughs> and basically, I, I joined medical school. For me, it was kind of a calling. Um, after I graduated from high school, I went directly to medical school in Algiers, North Africa. Um, our medical system is very different than where I currently practice, which is in the United States, uh, since there is no college system in Algeria, like uh, several other countries. I think we see that in other countries. Uh, we do eight years of medical school, and um, I was the first one in my close and extended family to end up graduating from uh, from medical school. So my parents are both engineers, retired engineers, and so we have lots of engineers and lawyers and teachers. But uh, but so I was I was the first doctor in my family. Uh, but I inspired a cousin to become a doctor too, so that's great. <laughs> so what really mo- motivated me to go into medical school is really to help. Um, I saw several close relatives suffer from acute or chronic illness, uh, but also myself as a little patient, I, w- I was a little patient, and actually for 11 years, I wore a back brace for scoliosis, um, and so I was kind of exposed to the medical field in that way. Now, so basically early on in high school, I already knew that I wanted to be a doctor, and when I went to medical school, I went with the goal to join Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders. It didn't go as planned, so I didn't. I never joined Doctors Without Borders because life is full of twists and turns and and surprises, of course. <laughs> the years of your medical studies uh, fell onto the time of the Black Decade in Algeria. There was war. How did it impact you personally, and how did it change your professional perspectives? It did have an impact on me. So for the ones who, don't, who may not know what the Black Decade uh, refers to or stands for, uh, it's a decade civil war in Algeria uh, that ended in 2002. Um, so it was a, a difficult time for me to be in medical school. We had, we had returned from Italy. And so I finished my uh, uh, two last years of, of high school um, in the French school in Algiers. Uh, and actually during that time, just before... The, the war was officially declared, the school a year before was closed. So I think politically, they already knew that something was boiling, was preparing. Just so medical school was, was exciting, but very stressful in a way. And I think I realized that once I left 
Algiers or Algeria to pursue my training. Once you live there, you, you just go with the flow. You don't realize how much stress and you always have to look at your back and, and be careful. Uh, we had military and police checkpoints and, and curfews. So really had to be careful, you know, going out at certain times and, and, and returning back home or staying in the hospital just to be safe. So I did, I did learn to work in, in, in difficult conditions. And, and so my heart really goes to everyone living in war zones or uh, in, in a wartime environment. This also helped me connect emotionally with my fellow students and professors. We sadly had one of our professors who was murdered uh, during this time. Everyone considered an intellectual, some people considered intellectual, were actually potential targets. And I, I did face several situations throughout training in medical school that were mentally taxing. Uh, and on a few occasions, I faced personal life-threatening situations, just because sometimes you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, once uh, it was in the street, and once was actually when I was doing my uh, rotation in orthopedics. Um, and so we had um, armed people coming and, 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 and shooting, and it was very, very scary. When I speak about it now, it feels so surreal. <laughs> of course, you know, this was many years ago. And uh, of course, I could have, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I could have burned out or just um, left medical school uh, from that. But I think it really helped me grow. And also, I suppose it was because I was younger. Um, I think we see we have a different outlook on life back then. Thank you so much for reflecting on this time. I suppose, though, I know that it was hard, although, as you mentioned, you can only appreciate that if you look back in retrospective and while you are going through it, you just go with the flow. So returning back to your career pathway, after you finished your uh, medical studies, what drew you to pursue neurology and how did you decide where to pursue the future training? After my medical school, I, I think I felt that I needed to do a my further my training abroad. And uh, again, it was taxing. And so I, I just was ready for something different it was eight years um, of living in a, in a difficult um, environment. So I came to the United States for my neurology training. This was really not planned initially, but it, it happened. And so as a foreign medical graduate, relocating to the United States and starting internship and neurology residency, uh, brought a different set of challenges, you know, from the ones I had in medical school. Um, I came alone here. I had no family and no close friends in the States. I had met my future chair, Dr. Joe Berger, and he's like, Mariam, you have to apply to my program. And uh, and it was at the University of Kentucky. And, and I have to admit, I'm very embarrassed to say that I didn't even know where Kentucky was then. Um, but him and his family were so welcoming and um, and supportive, and he considered he considered himself as my American father. <laughs> and and so I, I had to train and practice uh, when I came here. The challenges are that I had to train and practice not only in a different system, uh, but in a different language. And and so for me, it was like a total adventure, Kentucky and and all in English. And uh, so it was a big adjustment, but it was fun. It was very interesting. I have fantastic memories of my residency and the same thing, the bonds and, and the friendships I made. Um, they're very special time. But yeah, so I had along the way, I had several mentors um, and, um, and sponsors. It's what I would like to say is that some of these mentors and sponsors were not always in my field. One colleague and, and, and mentor that was redefining for me was Dr. Brenda Fahey. Uh, she's, an, uh, she's an anesthesiologist. We did 
fantastic projects with her and, and publications regarding EEG education. And she wanted to broaden this to for age interpretation to non-neurologists. Also my, so I mentioned about my prior chair, Dr. Joe Berger, but also my current chair, Dr. Larry Goldstein, who has been very supportive. Um, and I also found support and mentorship and sponsorship from colleagues with my involvement in professional organizations outside of my institution. And, and these are, I mean, there are numerous, so Dr. Jonathan Edwards, Dr. Gloria Galloway, Dr. Atif Hussein, Dr. Frank Drislin, but also had several role models, such as Dr. Suzette LaRoche and Dr. Sue Herman. So I'm just very grateful for these colleagues and my colleagues in general, and, and for all these friendships that we end up professionally uh, nurturing. Great that so many people around you help you along your way, and you were able to find so many support from your mentors. That's wonderful. When and why did you decide to enter a pathology field? Well, during my residency in neurology, I found the brain captivating. Of course, you know, neurology is not just about the brain, but I was just attracted by the brain. And, um, and then I found epileptology to be a very dynamic field, uh, which offers a multidisciplinary approach in terms of investigation and management. Um, and during my training as a resident, I was just intrigued by the variety of symptomatology by the cedar semiology that is produced by a stimulated brain. And one of my mentors during residency, Dr. Tufik Fukuri, was really a key point in me choosing epilepsy. Uh, now, as much as I find the brain captivating, I find epilepsy cruel, um, very cruel. It's, it's, a, it's a frequent neurologic condition with intermittent crisis, as you know, that can dramatically disrupt patients' lives. Seizures, even if they're brief, can have devastating uh, effects on patients and their loved ones. And, and seizures can cause injuries, death, and epileptology offers this incredible opportunity to really help uh, these patients and, and their loved ones. So that's why I choose epileptology. The 2024 e-forum series from ILAE starts June 10th with a session on outcomes beyond seizures in the childhood onset epilepsies. The e-forum features several experts examining the topic in detail with live Q&A sessions and key learning points. Registrants also get access to relevant research papers and a self-paced virtual course to consolidate their learning. Visit ilae.org congresses and click on the webinar tab to see more information and register. You have so many professional responsibilities, and you are also a single parent. What has that experience been like? Do you have any advice for other physicians who are in the same situation as you? I had my child during my clinical neurophysiology epilepsy fellowship, so in January, in the middle of the fellowship. And uh, at that time, I was still married, uh, but my ex-husband uh, and I lived in different states, Uh, he was finishing his neurosurgery uh, residency, and then he did a pediatric neurosurgical fellowship eventually. Uh, we were apart for some time during um, his training, my training, uh, so our child stayed with me. Uh, but then eventually I became officially a single mother, uh, but this was as a faculty, so not as a trainee, uh, officially not as a trainee. I did have my child by, by myself. During fellowship, my mother was able, she had retired and she was uh, able to come and help me. And, and so I was very fortunate with that for the last few months uh, so I could finish my fellowship. 
Um, so yeah, it was not easy. And, and I'm a part of a small category of, of people, uh, full-time working physicians who are single parents. And I'm the only one actually in my department in this category, which makes me kind of an out uh, outlier. But yes, how would I advise single parents? I, I, I would say that it can be done. Is it going to be easy? No. Um, some days will be extremely difficult, but each day has an end. That's what I think. At the end of the day, it's gonna, the day will end. And what cannot be done in a day or today, it can be completed in the following days. Okay. So sometimes we have this idea that we need to accomplish everything, well, everything on the to-do list and have all these things. And, and sometimes it's just not a realistic, realistic option. You have to kind of uh, take one day at a time and what is accomplished, you accomplished, be grateful and move to the next day, leave a little bit for the next day. That's how I see it nowadays. Um, and, and also there is always a solution. Sometimes we feel very helpless. We feel overwhelmed, but there is always a solution. May not be what we initially had in mind and intended, but there is always a solution at the end of the day. And also I would, I would advise uh, single parents uh, or parents in general um, or anybody struggling um, to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for assistance. Uh, it took me some time to understand this, uh, maybe a little bit of pride. And I was in a, in a particular situation as a foreign medical graduate. And then imagine being a single parent, divorced. I mean, it puts you in all this like <laughs> uh, very particular category. And, and for me, I didn't want to, I don't want people to perceive this as a weakness or a way. So a lot of things I kept for myself. Uh, and I'm really happy to see the new generation. People are more transparent and are okay to be vulnerable and ask for help. I, I think this is fantastic. And remember to be kind to yourself because sometimes we have all these expectations, especially us in the medical field. You know, we, for, I guess just to choose this field, we have a certain personality and, and we don't accept failure and things don't go the way sometimes we want it to go. We, we are hard on ourselves. So I think, you know, uh, we need to remember to be kind to ourselves. The part of your professional activity that I find really fascinating is that you are running the uh, epilepsy fellowship program. Please share the details. How do you run it and what can make a successful uh, launch for an epilepsy fellowship program? You know, so it's a new program and, and that's challenging by itself. And the program has expanded. So initially we were a couple of epileptologists and eventually we became four, five and eight, and now we're 10. Uh, of course, not everybody is with the program 100% of the time, but everybody's um, involved. And so we had a large volume of patients and uh, a lot of opportunity to um, to teach and educate. And so I, I had this vision of you know creating this fellowship, uh, an ACGME fellowship, accredited fellowship. And and for that, of course, I uh, I needed support, and I had the support of my chair, Dr. Larry Goldstein, and my colleagues. Initially, when we submitted, it was just for one position. Um, so now I'm submitting to get a second position. Now we're facing different challenges because it's a, it's a new program. Even though it's the only one in Kentucky, it's a new program. So we have competition from bigger programs and more established programs. And so now it's about keeping the fellowship running and, and filling in the slots, which uh, this, this is the challenge now. But I think it's a bit challenging in other institutions uh, because of the pool of interested uh, candidates in clinical neurophysiology or epilepsy in general. Um, just there is a decrease pool compared to other subspecialties. Oh, why do you think it's, it's like that? Well, that is a, that's an interesting question because I think right now it used to be, I mean, we used to have 
uh, more than half of our residents, for instance, who wanted to do an epilepsy fellowship, either epilepsy or clinical neurophysiology with emphasis on epilepsy. And, and things have turned. Now it's more other subspecialties such as vascular, stroke neurology, hospitalists. We see a lot of people interested, uh, uh, residents in being hospitalists or interventional neurologists, movement disorder. So there is kind of a decrease. And for the United States, I think because of the cuts, the reimbursement, um, I think that made it a little bit more difficult for you know, for people. I think the new generation is um, is very wise, but very practical. And, um, and you know, of course, yes, I mean, it's a, it's, those are long hours. We have a very different workflow than other subspecialties. I mean, we look at hours and hours of monitoring. And, and so really, it's a, it's a fascinating field, but it is, it's a very different workflow uh, than other subspecialties. And I don't think a lot of people understand the work we do. I know that you are involved in some interesting activities besides your professional ones. You are involved in some martial arts and also you dance tango. I have to thank my son for the martial arts. So uh, this is an activity that I shared with my son for several years. And uh, he probably started when he was like four or five years old, very young. Um, and actually, I had chosen this, uh, this activity for him. He was very reserved. And I felt that maybe martial arts will instill a little bit of confidence in him. And um, he joined a class and it didn't go well. And, and then he insisted that I do it with him. So then I ended up, we ended up doing it together, which worked out perfectly well because we had this precious time together. And, and we had uh, the most amazing memories training together and doing competitions together. Uh, I just fell in love with martial arts and the way it made me feel. It helps me reset mentally and recharge. Uh, then I did some after Krav Maga, two and a half years of Krav Maga, then I ended up doing Capoeira, which I, I found beautiful. But now I'm doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I think this is it. This this is it. I found it. Um, I'm, I'm in love with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I can't say enough. And, and I feel that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is such a intellectually, we, it's very physical, but intellectual is very stimulating. The learning process, the combinations, you know, if I have to compare it to something, it could be like maybe, and it's frequently compared to chess, playing chess, uh, but physically, you know, playing chess physically because you end up in these very different positions and you have to find a solution how to get out of it or how to not be submitted. I, I also, I think about jujitsu as a language is basically you learn all these little blocks, you put them together, you make sentences and then you make paragraphs and then you learn this language. Um, so for me, it's really like a language. Um, and so intellectual, I find it very, very stimulating. I learned a lot from my grandmaster in Taekwondo. He, he asked me, and this is a question he not just asked me, but other people. He will ask, uh, what is the most important thing in your life? And I would say, of course, I was with my son. I was like, my son, my son is the most important thing in my life. And he will reply, that's the wrong answer. Until one day he told me, uh, the most important thing in your life should be you. Because if you're not well physically and mentally, if you don't take care of yourself, how can you take care of your family and the people who rely on you? I still struggle with this concept, but it makes sense. So that's why I think we have to take care of ourselves so we can take care of others. That's really inspiring. Thank oh, you. Okay. Uh, but what about the dances? That's something really different from martial arts, something more considered to be uh, more elegant, I would say. Uh, how did you get involved into, into that field as well? And how do you combine those? When I was in residency, I did, I did take some classes for uh, ballroom dancing. 
And and I really enjoyed that. And uh, but then, you know, I got busy with residency, of course, could not do everything. And so basically, my brother's significant other, at the age of 37 years old, she died from leukemia. But before she died, it was uh, she had a few days to live and, and then in a few few weeks. But I really wanted to honor her because that was a, such a um, such a such a tragedy for us and for my brother, for her, for her family. And I was kept thinking, you know, can you imagine you're 37 years old and 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 you're told like you have a few weeks to live or a few days to live? What would you do? Because we really take life for granted and life just passes. And, and we get sometimes worried about little trivial things where we forget the bigger picture, I feel. And, and so basically, I ran across a studio that was offering lessons, um, a couple of free lessons just as a trial. And, and so kind of I, I, um, I ended up joining the studio, but I really wanted to focus on Argentine tango. So, but I did that for her to honor her because I was like, we really take life for granted. And, and this is so, so wrong. I mean, I tried lots of dances. But my favorite, my favorite of all is Argentine tango. It just, um, tango just sweeps you up. That's how I feel about it. And the same as uh, the similarities with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's really you grow and you improve. You, you should not be comparing yourselves to others. Same when I go on the mats and do training with Brazilian jiu-jitsu with my uh, drilling partners and, and, and when we roll, we, the comparison should not be about how Am I am I better than this one or that one? Are they better than me? It should be a comparison with yourself. You you can't be good doing jujitsu a couple of years. It takes decades to improve. There is so much. The combinations are amazing. So much to learn. And the same thing for Argentine tango. It takes years to find what they call the axis and that connection with your partner when you dance. And, and so basically, it's a never-ending task of refining the technique. And so it takes years to advance. And so I like the challenge. Thank you so much for sharing those experiences with us. You have accomplished so much, both professionally and personally. I just wonder, how do you find time for all of that? Well, I <laughs> thanks. I feel that right now, I feel that I'm behind with my life, as I say, not just behind with, with a lot of things. I mean, it is difficult to, to manage all, okay? But if I don't make the time then I'm not going to do it. Because if you think about it, work frequently goes beyond the daily. I mean, I, I don't, you know, for residency, but especially in academia, it's it's very tricky because a lot of the work that we do is service. There is documentation. There is so much that we do, uh, even in private practice, of course, but the service that we do, I mean, there are um, colleagues who are in private practice who do service, who are involved with organizations or committee work in their institutions or uh, hospitals, but all this is extra work and it takes time to complete. In addition to being a doctor, in addition to caring for patients. But then you realize if you don't set these boundaries, work will just continue to erode into your personal life. I mean, it's it 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 does. It does after hours. I mean, we're doing emails, you know, we're writing articles for some, you know, the ones who write articles and love to do that. It just takes a lot and it takes on your personal time. And the solution is not to hope for 48-hour days. <laughs> the solution is to keep the 24-hour day, but to be able to manage and kind of find a little bit of space, even if it's a short time. I mean, for instance, you know, for Taekwondo, sometimes I can't do the full hour. On the weekend, sometimes if I'm on call, I honestly, I show up for 15 minutes. 
But I'll say at least these 15 minutes were for me. Life, you know, becomes busy and, and we make so many sacrifices that we forget to take care of ourselves. So I think that we need to reconnect with what who we are and what we like and what makes us happy or even explore new things. And life happens. And we have to keep that in mind. And we see it every day with our patients and their families. But when it hits your own family, then you see things a bit maybe with a different perspective. So really setting boundaries. Another thing is, and this is something I, I had to learn and it takes time to learn, is also, you know, to know, to say no. Uh, if, if you set your time to spend with your family or friends and this is your time, you have to say no, you know, be grateful if, if you're offered another opportunity, say thank you. But also if the decision was to spend that time differently, you have to respect it for yourself and others, you know, the, the people that, that you love. My next step is to work on my sleep schedule. So I, I don't sleep much, uh, of course, because again, you can't expend time. <laughs> so something has to give up. Uh, but this is my little weakness and is I don't get enough sleep and, and I need to work on that. <laughs> I think many of our listeners, including myself, are can relate to this. And yeah. <laughs> this is uh, an advice to everybody. Please take care of your sleep. Sleep is important. And especially yeah. for you as a neurologist, it should be crystal clear that we all need to sleep enough. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. What... Uh, would you like to accomplish as you move along? What are your next things in your to-do list? What, what would you like to accomplish from the professional standpoint? As an epileptologist, what I found disheartening is to patients who live with epilepsy that are being referred to epilepsy centers or to epileptologists or more than 20 years after their epilepsy has started. And I think it's this is disheartening. I mean, those are statistics or, or numbers that I heard when I was a resident. It was more than 20 years ago. And we still see that. I Not not too long ago, I saw in my clinic somebody who had epilepsy, 34 years diagnosed, and he's only now referred to an epilepsy center. So what I'd like to do, and this is an idea I had for a long time, we started doing it with my one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Sid Kapoor, and we really build a network uh, for us in the state of Kentucky where we can, we can have uh, patients, we can have patient navigators, uh, the Epilepsy Foundation of Kentuckiana, which is an affiliate of the Epilepsy Foundation National, other epilepsy centers, uh, NAC centers, level three and level four centers come together um, and work together and be able to refer patients. And because there is a lot of competition, I think, between centers. And I think it's uh, um, it shouldn't happen that way because at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about the patients. And so, yeah, it's all about, again, connecting people so we can all work together well and to serve our patients well and, and help them. Thank you so much for your commitment. And thank you so much for sharing all of your insight with us today, all your career pathway. Thank you so much for being with us today. Dr. Ivanyuk, thank you so much for, again, giving me the opportunity to, to speak with you. And thanks for the work you do. And I'm really looking forward for the new generation of neurologists, epileptologists, such as yourself, taking over and, uh, and doing amazing, fantastic things. Thanks for listening to Sharp Waves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharpwaves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.